The thing that's important to remember about population control is that if we want to avoid a tremendous rise in the death rate, we absolutely must have a tremendous decrease in the birth rate. I have no doubt now, the that the fundamental source of all our problems, particularly our environmental problems, is population growth. I can't think we cannot of hide problem. away from human population growth because you know, it underlies so many of the other problems. All these things we talk about wouldn't be a problem if there, were, if there was the size of population that there was 500 years ago. As a global community, we really have got to start dealing with the issue of population. Is that something we have to deal with? What does that even really mean? Let's talk about the overpopulation debate, its history, and its impacts on people. Hey, uh, this is Acclimated, a show about climate change, political ecology, media, all that stuff, seeing how it sort of comes together. It's a bit of a proof of concept at the moment. I'm still working out a lot of the details. Uh, what motivated me to do this was I uh, watched a movie that kind of infuriated me, which I feel like is maybe a, a principal motivator of content creation on the internet at this point. In this case, the movie was a documentary. It's called Planet of the Humans. It's directed by Jeff Gibbs, who also does the voiceover narration, but it was produced by Michael Moore, actually. And Michael Moore is the guy who made a number of really popular documentaries like uh, Fahrenheit 9-11, Bowling for Columbine. You know, I have to be honest, I actually haven't seen any of his other movies in full, so I, I, I can't speak to how this one compares stylistically or in terms of quality or anything like that. I will say I didn't particularly enjoy this one. That's why I'm doing this. You can actually watch the movie on YouTube, at least as of this recording. That's how they made it available. It was a free release on YouTube. But I don't think I would quite recommend doing that. And hopefully by the end of this, I will have explained why I feel that way. Have you ever wondered what would happen if a single species took over an entire planet? Maybe they're cute. Maybe they're clever but lack a certain, shall we say, self-restraint? What if they go too far? What if they go way, 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 way too far? How would they know when it's their time to go? Planet of the Humans is basically structured as like it's kind of a critique of the contemporary environmental movement and it focuses in particular on what it sees as the shortcomings of renewable energy technology or, or green energy it sort of argues that it doesn't live up to the hype and so there's uh, you know a lot of reasons to be skeptical of it that sort of thing 
Uh, and this is, you know, obviously, particularly now, this is a very contentious issue. So after it came out, it sparked a lot of debates online around, you know, whether or not it was arguing in good faith, whether or not it was misrepresenting its facts, or, you know, maybe did it actually have something important to say, all that sort of stuff. But that's actually not the uh, area I'm going to focus on today. Um, although I think that stuff is important, it, it's not what got me so frustrated in the first place. Instead, I'd like to take a look at the topic that came up with uh, those speakers at the beginning, the topic of overpopulation. And on this, the movie is, you know, it's got a fairly bleak perspective and it paints with a very wide brush. It speaks in pretty big generalizations about human impacts on the environment and all that sort of thing. And this was also fairly controversial. And its, it's principal point here, when it comes up, when it's not talking about green energy, its principal point is that there are just simply too many people living on the planet right now and that avoiding ecological catastrophe requires a significant reduction in human population. You know, according to the film, there just aren't enough resources on Earth to support a population of 7.7 billion people or so. This topic of overpopulation, the idea that there are just too many people and the population growth is running out of control, it's actually been a consistent part of sort of mainstream discourse to some extent or another for a, a few decades now. It shows up in pop culture sometimes. It came back into pop culture spotlight a couple of years ago, actually, in a very big way with Avengers Infinity War, uh, because the villain in that, Thanos, you know, famously proclaimed his desire to end suffering by uh, just killing half of all life in the universe at random. Pretty, isn't it? Perfectly balanced, as all things should be. In his backstory, the idea is that he proposed this idea to, I guess, his government or whatever on his planet, and they rejected it. He got exiled for it. And so his response was to just conquer other planets and take care of all that depopulation on his own. Titan was like most planets. Too many mouths, not enough to go around. And when we faced extinction, I offered a solution. Genocide. But random, dispassionate, fair to rich and poor alike. They called me a madman. And what I predicted came to pass. What he means here is that his planet eventually experienced insurmountable tragedy, presumably as a result of the overpopulation he anticipated. So in order to prevent that from happening elsewhere, at least according to his argument, uh, he decides to expedite his plans to uh, depopulate the rest of the universe. And in Infinity War, he goes ahead and uh, takes care of this. He collects the Infinity Stones, does what he needs to do, snaps his fingers, half of all life is extinguished, and um, that's that. Credits roll. And so, obviously, uh, it's got people talking afterward. Some people a little bit more seriously, some people sort of half-joking, whatever. But, you know, over the next few months, a, a debate played out where people would say, is there merit to this idea that resource scarcity and population are, are sort of intention, or is this just sort of like a dangerous um, path to go down in, in terms of environmental politics? Uh, you know, people online joked that Thanos did nothing wrong, all that sort of stuff. And so a, a term that came up often in these conversations was Malthusian, which is a reference to the ideas on population growth set forth by uh, Thomas Malthus back in the late 18th century. Uh, and Thanos was apparently a Malthusian, but let's listen to him describe his philosophy in a little bit more detail um, and see how he thinks things actually work. No. We were happy on my home planet. Going to bed hungry, scrounging for scraps. Your planet was on the brink of collapse. I'm the one who stopped that. 
Do you know what's happened since then? The children born have known nothing but full bellies and clear skies. It's a paradise. Because you murdered half the planet. A small price to pay for salvation. You're insane. Little one, it's a simple calculus. This universe is finite, its resource is finite. If life is left unchecked, life will cease to exist. It needs correction. You don't know that! I'm the only one who knows that. At least I'm the only one with the will to act on it. So in this conversation, he spells out uh, the formula as he sees it. Finite resources means finite people. So if there are too many people around, there won't be enough for everyone. It's, it's pure math. There's no way around it. And this kind of, you know, very straightforward mathematic formation of resources versus population is often associated with Malthus. I will admit, I have referred to these kinds of ideas as Malthusian in my own writing before. It's a very easy shorthand, but it actually isn't exactly what Malthus was talking about. And I think looking at what he and his successors specifically proposed makes it easier to understand the problems with the overpopulation debate as it exists today and as it has existed for the past two centuries. Thomas Malthus was an English pastor who was also an active writer in the fields of political economy and demography. He gained a significant amount of recognition and notoriety after publishing a work called An Essay on the Principle of Population in 1798. The book helped propel ideas around population growth into the mainstream in English politics, and Malthus spent the next few decades revising the essay and writing further about economics. Now, I mentioned that Malthus was a pastor, which is something that gets overlooked sometimes, but I think is important for understanding his theories. His personal perspective and the political context of the period are crucial for making sense of Malthusianism. Malthus was a deeply religious person, and in addition to that, he held very strong views about historical developments that were occurring around him. Not major stuff, but just, you know, things like the French Revolution is one example. And these radical political efforts and the related ideologies that looked to create, you know, a more equal society were working against human nature itself as far as Malthus was concerned. Which is to say that Malthus was not trying to be dispassionate or impartial in his work. He was very deliberately trying to refute the political philosophies of radicals at the time in an effort to defend what he believed was a kind of natural social hierarchy that was under attack. Over the years, his work has been filtered through different debates and interpretations that have helped grant his arguments an impression of objectivity uh, informed by scientific rigor that really weren't there in the first place. So, broadly stated, Malthus argued that population has a tendency to grow at a rate that is faster than the ability of a society to produce food. We should note right now that this is uh, not true, like, the math is wrong, <laughs> but we will come back to that point later. Malthus made this argument based on his belief that human beings had a limitless desire to reproduce, and he saw this population versus food ratio as an underlying formula over the long term, regardless of any temporary evidence to the contrary. He believed that if this ratio didn't appear to be in effect, society would eventually just correct itself due to factors like famine or war or perhaps some other external societal pressure on people's ability or desire to have kids. In situations where food production was not outpaced by population, Malthus argued that people were just not living good lives anyway. They were living in misery in his terms because they were overburdening nature's capability to provide, and so his conclusion was the same. Too many people. 
And so we can start to see that Malthus was not really engaging exclusively in mathematic observation, but in something much more politically motivated. Critics of this perspective argued that this misery was actually related to a failure in the distribution of resources, a systemic political inequality, and that this suffering was preventable. But Malthus vehemently rejected this idea because Malthus believed that a social hierarchy was not only desirable, but actually necessary. And I'm going to quote him here to hopefully demonstrate what I mean. This is from chapter two. But though the rich, by unfair combinations, contribute frequently to prolong a season of distress among the poor, yet no possible form of society could prevent the almost constant action of misery upon a great part of mankind, if in a state of inequality, and upon all, if all were equal. What he's saying here is that there is no way around inequality. It is absolutely inherent in human society. And so, yeah, the rich do contribute to the misery of everyone else, but this is actually preferable to an alternative in which everyone is equal, because if everyone were equal, everyone would suffer more than they do now. For Malthus, it's actually a good and necessary thing for society to preserve the hierarchies that revolutionaries were trying to challenge, because to make life better for everyone is just unrealistic. This leads him to some policy proposals that will probably sound familiar. Malthus hated social welfare programs. These were represented at the time by England's poor laws, which were an early iteration of poverty relief programs managed at the local level that were introduced in the early 1600s. So if you have ever heard like a modern conservative argument against uh, you know, unemployment insurance or the supplemental nutrition assistance program, you can pretty much guess at the argument Malthus was making. Social welfare programs, he claimed, led to laziness in workers and encouraged them to be less productive. So when paired with his ideas around population growth and scarce resources, he uh, ultimately arrived at the claim that social welfare programs actually increased suffering overall for society because they put downward pressure on its ability to produce food for the population, which inevitably kept growing. And of course, he associated these concerns with his beliefs about, you know, like the bad behaviors and the vices of the working class and how welfare programs facilitate these behaviors, you know, all these very familiar tropes. And so then he went further with it. Because of all this, social welfare programs are actually an impediment to the freedom of the rest of society. I'll note quickly that Malthus gained enough visibility in the early 1800s with his writing that some of his ideas had a direct influence on policymaking. His ideas on welfare programs helped inform the thinking behind the overhaul of the poor laws in the 1830s, when the welfare system became more centralized, uh, more difficult for people to access, and offered fewer benefits. This kind of influence on practical politics is true of his successors as well, so these debates are not abstract. Despite all of this, Malthus was not a proponent of limiting economic activity to conserve scarce resources. Again, the Thanos parallel that everybody kind of talks about is not as strong as it first appears. This is something that scholar Georgios Callas gets into in his book Limits, which came out just last year. He makes a compelling case that Malthus was in fact arguing in favor of economic growth, but in a distinctly capitalist manner, in a way that retains all the class dimensions of capitalism. Because Malthus saw no way out of inequality, he felt that the best way forward was to maintain a system that separated what he called the proprietors and the laborers, to maintain an amount of inequality that would properly encourage economic growth, and therefore increase food production in line with population growth. With this approach, Malthus claimed society could achieve some sort of like equilibrium, I guess, a situation in which nature's scarce resources would be used appropriately in service of maintaining you know, the quote-unquote right amount of growth in population. Again, although this is, you know, now 220-something years old, it might sound pretty contemporary. 
And so that's another indication of just how important hierarchies of authority are. I mean, they've been conserved since the time of lobsters, right? Hierarchies are inevitable. And when you implement a solution to a complex problem socially, you produce a hierarchy. The left is to remind those who are benefiting from the hierarchies that the hierarchy comes at a cost. And the cost is the clumping of people at the bottom. And the right should be saying, yeah, but the damn hierarchies are necessary. And they're not only necessary, but they're also productive. When the left goes too far, it does something like say, well, how about no hierarchies? It's like, no, how about not? Wrong. Because- All right, I, I think that's enough from Dr. Peterson. I think he's illustrated my point. There's a continuity here from Malthus and his peers to uh, contemporary conservative thought. It's probably not shocking to hear that Marx and Engels and many others absolutely hated the ideas that Malthus put forth. Nowhere in the essay on population does Malthus attempt to reckon with political economy in a way that suggests that it's changeable at all, that it might be remade in a more just way. He simply didn't believe that other types of social organization could exist that would offer a better life for more people. And so when we put all this together and we consider Malthus with, with this context, we can start to ask whether or not he's talking about anything that sounds like an ecologically minded politics or that if it has any sort of sense of liberatory political goal at all. And if it doesn't tick these boxes, then ecological arguments that are indebted to Malthus can be approached with maybe a little bit more skepticism. Giorgio Callas spends some time in his book looking at the influence Malthus had on the environmental movements of the 20th century. In particular, Callas sees a shift from the idea that humans have an unlimited desire to reproduce to the idea that humans have an unlimited desire to consume. This is a, a pretty crucial point for certain uh, contemporary ecological debates. And so we'll return to it when we talk about Planet of the Humans later. To get to that film, though, I think it helps to look at some of the writers who laid the groundwork for it. Over the next 170 years or so, the overpopulation discourse continued to evolve. In the late 1960s, the debate exploded into the mainstream again, thanks, in part, to the publication of a book called The Population Bomb. Dr. Paul Ehrlich was a professor of biology at Stanford University at the time, focusing on the study of insects, but had been an active participant in growing debates around overpopulation that were occurring on college campuses throughout the previous decade. In 1968, Paul co-wrote and published The Population Bomb with his wife, Anne. And the book eventually went on to sell millions of copies and helped ignite a media storm about overpopulation and what might be done about it. In The Population Bomb, Paul and Anne Ehrlich argued that overpopulation was a primary cause of many or most of the world's greatest problems and claimed that there was basically no longer any way to avoid a significant increase in the global mortality rate in the coming years. Hundreds of millions of people would die due to starvation within a decade or so. This was simply inevitable. Beyond that, the Ehrlichs detailed a number of other hypothetical apocalyptic scenarios that might materialize if things weren't done to prevent them. Now, although he was just a co-writer, Paul was the only author credited on the population bomb, and following its release, he became something like a public intellectual on the issue of population growth. He was a frequent guest on news broadcasts and on shows as popular as The Tonight Show, which Johnny Carson actually had him on repeatedly. It was about 10 years ago this month that Dr. Paul Ehrlich made his first appearance on The Tonight Show, and it elicited probably more mail than any guests at that time we have ever had on the show. Uh, it had to do uh, with his book, The Population Bomb, and it was a major factor in a 
launching the ZPG, which is zero population growth in this country. And since that show, he's done about 25 shows with us. Would you welcome Dr. Paul Ehrlich? Now, this might sound really bizarre right now, but it was a moment in culture. And Ehrlich was just one of many different organizations and individuals warning about the existential threat of population growth at the time. Private corporations and the U.S. government were funding influential research studies on population control at universities. All of this contributed to an environment of intensifying public anxiety about overpopulation, reflected in doomsday media reports and government warnings about the risks of failing to act. And these weren't just abstract warnings either. Uh, we're going to face disasters in the future uh, because we've already, with the gap between food and population is bound to grow. What disasters do you see if we don't change our ways? The disaster will take the form of famine, plague, or war. They're mankind's old uh, companions, fundamentally. You just got to remember this. There's no way out of the arithmetic. There will never be 7 billion people in the year 2000. The only question is why won't there be 7 billion people in the year 2000? Will it be because we've had so many people die off of those things, or will it be because we have managed to bring the birth rate down a long way? For the record, global population hit 6 billion in 1999, and I think 7 million somewhere around 2011 or 2012. So he was technically right, just not in the way that he meant it, and not for any of the reasons that he actually suggested. It just so happened that all of this aligned nicely with the political and economic interests of certain countries, like the United States. In her book, Reproductive Rights and Wrongs, Betsy Hartman describes a national security study produced in the mid-1970s during the Ford administration that shaped government policy. The study discusses strategic reasons for supporting population control initiatives in what was then called the Third World. Principal among these reasons was basically an anti-communist mission. The idea was that population control could supposedly help suppress the activities of political radicals, which would then help protect the United States' access to natural resources in other countries. And then by tethering foreign aid to population control programs, the U.S. would be able to further expand its political influence overseas. Uh, following along with this, the World Bank and the IMF would also later make some of their loans contingent on a country's adoption of population control programs. And this is exactly what they imposed on Kenya in the early 1980s, for example. So as with Malthus and his attacks on social welfare programs, population growth discourse of the 20th century had very concrete effects on people's lives. What does uh, population control actually look like in practice? This is something that Hartman gets into at length in her book, so I'm just going to give a few examples that I think are uh, representative. In the 1990s, the government of Alberto Fujimori in Peru forcibly sterilized around 300,000 indigenous women, specifically indigenous women, and this is with funding and assistance from uh, the U.S. government and from the UN. Uh, in Indonesia, under Suharto, in the 1980s, the government conducted mass IUD insertions. They would go out into you know, more rural areas, they would round up hundreds or even thousands of women at a time, coercively, and then without any regard for safety really, they would perform the procedures in a practice they referred to as a safari. In Bangladesh, the Philippines, and elsewhere, population control programs have set quotas for workers, making their income or job security dependent on how many IUDs they inserted, how many birth control pills they distributed, or how many people they sterilized in you know, a given month or year. Population control programs have also exploited the economic insecurity of the communities they work in by offering financial incentives for people who agree to contraceptive insertions or sterilizations. One of the programs in India that Hartman looks at offered women, I think, somewhere around $22 to be sterilized. 
Many programs have deliberately withheld information about possible side effects of procedures, uh, other forms of birth control that may be available, or even the irreversibility of certain procedures. These and similar population control efforts were often funded or otherwise supported by the U.S. government, by U.S. nonprofits, and by pharmaceutical companies. And in many cases, the development and financing of these programs have involved an intentional neglect and pulling of resources uh, from other healthcare and social services. There is also a long history within the U.S. and the territories it lays claim to of forced sterilizations of young women, particularly of poor women of color. More than 30 states had sterilization programs, often supported with federal government funding, many of which coerced people into sterilization by withholding information or even by performing sterilizations on women who were seeking entirely unrelated medical treatment. In the South, such programs specifically targeted black women, and in some cases, girls as young as 12 years old. California's program sterilized over 20,000 people and disproportionately targeted Mexican and Mexican-American women during the middle of the 20th century. In the 70s, the Indian Health Service was found to have performed sterilizations on more than 3,000 indigenous women without meeting the legal requirements for informed consent, and studies estimate that actually over 25% of indigenous women may have been sterilized during this period. In Puerto Rico, in the middle of the 20th century, the U.S. government facilitated aggressive sterilization efforts targeting women during roughly the same period in which it was helping companies shift manufacturing activities and chemical processing there with uh, tax incentives and other similar policies. So uh, a strange situation occurs where population control advocates and the government are pursuing control efforts supposedly due to concern for health and the environment. At the same time, the government is moving manufacturing to this place, which increases pollution and exposes communities to greater environmental harms. Now, these programs have roots in the eugenics movement in the U.S., which sought to limit the population of communities deemed, quote-unquote, undesirable due to race, class, disability, gender identity, incarceration status. There's a meaningful overlap in the histories of the eugenics movement and the broader overpopulation discourse. Some of the same organizations and individuals have been involved in both. This kind of thing might make us question whether or not the environment or public health is really the, the principal motivating factor behind these initiatives. Paul Ehrlich, for his part, does not seem to see much of a moral dilemma in any of this, though he might claim objection, at least, to the use of force. The stakes are simply too high, he thinks. Here's Dr. Ehrlich in a 2015 interview with the New York Times. I do not think my language is too apocalyptic in the population bomb. My language would be even more apocalyptic today. The idea that every woman should have as many babies as she wants uh, is, to me, exactly the same kind of idea as everybody ought to be permitted to throw as much of their garbage into their neighbor's backyard as they want. I mean, I, I get that he's trying to make a point about environmental impact here, but I find that analogy of his a, a bit disconcerting, maybe even dehumanizing. For one thing, as Hartman points out, this language reflects a misogyny that's common in overpopulation discourse. Ehrlich here blames women specifically for having babies. And this is consistent with decades of population control programs that often vilify women for their presumed irresponsibility. Ehrlich's comments here are also alarming due to something that he doesn't say outright, but isn't too well hidden. Many of the most vocal population control advocates are white, and they've often focused their attention on poor and working class people of color, and in particular on poor people in Africa, Asia, and South America. 
It's a discourse that builds directly off of the history of colonialism. There are lots of examples of this. Some are more explicit than others. People like Jane Goodall, David Attenborough, and many others have long expressed their anxieties about birth rates in so-called developing countries. Sometimes they'll even just admit that they're concerned about the fact that, by contrast, much of Europe's population growth is negative. Here's Jane Goodall, for example. It's been politically incorrect for a very long time. Um, If you go to a global conference on those issues and I'm there, you will hear me talking about the uh, mushrooming human population growth that's led to deforestation that leads not just to harm for the for the animals and the environment but the people living there too no question like what i described at gombe and if you talk about overpopulation uh, and not population control that's that's really what got to people they don't want to be controlled and then of course there's the catholic church and that makes uh, quite a, a major problem when you are trying to get balance between the people and their environment. And that's what has to happen. If we're going to take this world on through this millennium, um, that has to happen. I mean, don't you agree? We have to get more balance. I agree. I think the the tension is that in Europe, there's negative population growth. Yes. So it's a very Mm. unbalanced world. But to not talk about it and and face it Mm. head on is, is, uh, is crazy. What I'd point out here is that Dr. Goodall starts by talking about balance between nature and humans, but then slips really easily into talking about balance between populations of Europe and elsewhere once the interviewer mentions it. What does balance mean here? Why should it matter that there are more people in a certain area than another, unless there's something else that's motivating this conversation? Perfectly balanced. I suppose the biggest impact on human health I've seen is slums. Uh, slums in South America, slums in India, slums in uh, Africa. Huge areas occupied by people living, whole families in tiny little apartments uh, with no sanitation and uh, no future. Notice that Attenborough views slums as a consequence of population growth in some like inherent way, rather than as a consequence of, for example, government policy, uh, resource distribution, racial and class hierarchies, anything other than population growth itself. So, as we've heard, some cases they're pretty upfront, they're more explicit about their concerns about the race of the people being born. Uh, But in other cases, it's more implicit, and it's suggested through particular imagery or phrasing without actually mentioning race directly. Uh, The opening of Population Bomb itself does something sort of like this, with Paul and Anne describing the experience of a tense cab ride in Delhi, India. I'll let Paul explain it. This is from a different interview. What, tell us about that taxi Well, ride. we wanted something dramatic to start the book, and Anne and I uh, had, I can't remember where we were going, but it was back uh, to the hotel uh, when I was doing field work in India. And we got into a taxi that had one functioning gear uh, and the seats jumping with lice. Uh, and went through streets where people were living in the streets, as you can still find them in many parts of the world, um, cooking over little open fires, uh, relieving themselves in the streets. And it was a jam. And so we described that. Uh, It was probably a mistake because people said, ah, you're just racists. Well, of course, to a biologist who's worked in genetics and evolution, the whole idea of 
racial differences that are important uh, is just nonsense. But even more so, of course, the Indians, under the classic definitions of race, that the ones that are wrong are the same race as we are. Uh, so, but that's quite typical. When you get out in the public, you got to be ready to have people totally misinterpret what you do. If we wrote the book again, I'd probably uh, describe some some real hellhole like Miami uh, for uh, illustrating what's wrong with the world. Miami's an interesting choice. Anyway, what's also interesting is that Delhi's population, when the population bomb was released, was just under 3 million people, which was less than half of New York City's population at the time. Now, Paul grew up not too far from New York. I'm sure he's familiar with it, but he doesn't talk about New York. Perhaps it's just uh, that New York in the late 60s wasn't actually known for being congested or having a lot of traffic jams or anything like that. You know what I mean? Hey, I'm walking here! I'm walking here! Up yours, you son of a bitch! You don't talk me that way! Get out of here! Don't worry about that. Actually, that ain't a bad way to pick up insurance, you know. It would be unfair of me to say that he, he never addresses any of these issues. Uh, I don't want to misrepresent him entirely here. For me, the idea is that the framing is crucial. How he says it and where he chooses to put his focus. Everything is ultimately rooted in his belief that population is the sort of principal issue here. So it's, it's kind of, with him, a zero-sum game. And what this means is when he gets into his actual policy proposals or what he views as the most uh, significant priorities, the effect is largely similar to what's being proposed by the more colonialist, more racist population control measures. Or that even though we've decreased the, where we have replacement population in this country, the problem of immigration in this country, illegal immigrants especially, is still causing us monumental problems and you know the, the, the potential there is enormous for trouble because we have reached replacement reproduction which means if we hold it if we hold our <coughs> family size or a little uh, under two children uh, right. we'll eventually reach zpg as far as natural growth is concerned but right. americans are now concerned uh what do we do about immigrants and this is a very serious and complex problem because we we compassionately want to let people into the country at the same time if you like every sensible American realize that we have to have a finite population size, we have to stop growing sometime, we have to decide how many people we want. Once you've reached ZPG and you want to hold it there, every time you let an immigrant, you're trading off a birth. In other words, if you don't want to grow, you can have so many immigrants plus births. Right. And so every additional immigrant means a birth you're going to forgo, or every additional birth is going to be some refugee you're not going to let in. And we really need a national debate on this entire issue. There's been a lot of scare stuff about the Mexican immigration problem, which I think at the moment is much too scary. But what we need is a sensible debate to do something to, to adopt the right kind of policy so five years from now, mm -hmm. we don't get in much worse shape. Mexico's agriculture is in terrible shape. She has got a tremendous degree of un and underemployment. Uh, there's going to be a lot more push of Mexicans towards us unless we can help Mexico do the thing that's needed done there, namely to create jobs, jobs in Mexico. Yeah. Here you hear him sort of mention that he's perhaps uncomfortable with the way uh, people are discussing immigration issues. But ultimately, because everything is still about population in an absolute sense, instead of offering a sort of significant challenge to these ideas or these attitudes, he arrives somewhere that's like, you know, oh, what a shame we can't craft a more humane immigration program. If only we could, too bad about our overpopulation issue. We'll just have to start to sort of do the math on that first before we can attend to the uh, crisis of a racist immigration policy. The outcome is largely similar 
to the one that he is hypothetically expressing some ambivalence toward. And by using this language and by seeing things in these sort of absolutist terms, he enables and I think facilitates the sort of more colonialist, more racist approaches and offers a sort of legitimization of them. Paul and Anne Ehrlich were aware of these racist associations when they published The Population Bomb. In a 2009 retrospective essay, they note that the book's title was actually borrowed from a pamphlet published in the 50s by a population control advocacy group. This group was specifically, and I'm going to quote Paul and Anne's own words here, this is their words, uh, quote, most concerned with the control of the populations of dark-skinned people, end quote. That's what the group was focused on, according to the Ehrlichs. Uh, they state that they regret this sensationalist nature of the title, which was suggested by their publisher, but regardless, it reflects the political lineage of the movement going all the way back to Malthus, who disparaged the indigenous peoples of the Americas in 1798 in his original essay. Whatever the framing, this all contributes to a perception of non-Western countries as being retrograde or less civilized somehow, and it proposes the idea that it is the duty of Western majority white countries to shepherd these other nations into the modern era by helping them reduce their populations. It's a logic that follows familiar colonial geographies while obscuring very real, very relevant discrepancies in who is actually making the biggest contributions to the ecological crisis. All of this becomes more apparent when considering which countries and which people have been most heavily targeted by population control programs. Gradually, the population control discourse fell from the heights of mainstream media attention it achieved in the 70s. While overpopulation is no longer viewed as a threat with the same level of urgency in and of itself, it's often used now when discussing environmental concerns more broadly. The argument now is often not that having too many people is on its own a problem, it's that too many people are using too many resources and therefore killing the planet. And when addressed in this way, overpopulation is still an acceptably mainstream topic. It pops up casually in all sorts of places. I was reading a piece in the Times published just a few weeks ago about some studies that are showing that the rate of extinctions is accelerating, which is not encouraging news, but one of the main sources cited in the piece is Paul Ehrlich. And sure enough, toward the end of the piece, the author says that addressing the extinction crisis requires electing leaders who will prioritize, quote, slowing human population growth, unquote. Then the piece links out to an organization Ehrlich co-founded, basically giving him free publicity in what is ostensibly a piece of science journalism. There's no mention at all of any of the controversy or debates around population control or its impact on peoples across the globe. It's stated as though it's settled science, but it isn't. And discussing it as though it is overlooks huge disparities in resource use and carbon emissions. gone through all of that, we can now finally return to Planet of the Humans. All throughout Planet of the Humans, there runs this kind of undercurrent of fatalism, and it's rooted in the same fear of overpopulation that motivated Paul and Anne Ehrlich and their peers. Let's take a listen to that clip from the opening of the show again, but with a little bit more context. Though each of them takes climate change seriously, every expert I talk to wanted to bring my attention to the same underlying problem. There are too many human beings using too much too fast. 
as a global community, we really have got to start dealing with the issue of population. Population growth continues to be the, not the elephant, the herd of elephants in the, in the room. Can a single species that's come to dominate an entire planet be smart enough to voluntarily limit its own presence? Is there any precedence we for have... that in nature? <laughs> wow. We have to have our abilities to consume reined in because we're not good at reining them in if there are seemingly unrestrained resources. That last little bit reflects the shift in focus that I mentioned earlier. It's, it's the move from Malthus arguing that humans have a limitless desire to reproduce to this more recent idea that humans have a limitless desire to consume. In both cases, uh, a very big generalized assumption is being made about humans as a species, which effectively erases any differences that have actually existed between human societies over the past few thousand years. Species hit the population wall a lot, and then they crash. I mean, that's a common story in, in biology. If that happens to us, in, in a way, it's the natural order of things. And I don't think we're going to find a way out of this one. I don't. As a scientist, what leads you to that conclusion? Well, because right now, the, the, a, a, lo, a large percentage of that, that number is supported by industrial agriculture, which is heavily subsidized by oil, and it's not sustainable. And, you know, and there's no going back. Without, without seeing some sort of major die-off in population, there's no turning back. One of the most frustrating aspects of this is that it uses something very real to make a much broader claim that's not actually substantiated by the thing, the real thing that was just said. Industrial agriculture is indeed heavily reliant on fossil fuels, and it's grossly inefficient in all sorts of ways. But the assumption the speaker is making is that there are simply no other more sustainable ways to feed the planet's population. You know, it, it's a grim coincidence that this movie hit YouTube during a pandemic that revealed just a portion, just a small portion, of the unconscionable amount of waste and greed in the U.S. food supply chain. At a time when millions more people began relying on food banks, reports came in of farms that were destroying produce and dairy because they couldn't sell them to restaurants, because those restaurants had reduced their orders during lockdowns. The meat industry petitioned the Trump administration to remain open despite serious coronavirus outbreaks in factories all across the country that were endangering workers. Meat industry CEOs warned of supply chain breakdowns, warned of scarcity, they warned of rising prices for meat products that would be passed on to consumers, and at the exact same time, the industry was exporting its products in record numbers in order to take advantage of higher prices overseas. Putting this reality next to the implication that industrial agriculture is somehow the only way to feed 8 billion people illustrates just how off this perspective is, I think. Industrial agriculture isn't designed to feed 8 billion people. It's designed to generate profit, and it actually isn't even feeding 8 billion people anyway. Hundreds of millions of people still suffer from hunger, despite the fact that there is more than enough food to feed everyone. And that's been true for a long time. Malthus was wrong. His calculations about population and food supply were off then, and they're still off today. The crisis is due to the distribution of food, not a scarcity of it. So I, I don't think the appropriate response to this is a resignation toward a die-off, whatever that might mean, but instead to demand and support genuinely sustainable, more just agricultural practices. Many of these practices are well-established, so this is not a question of hypothetical technologies and all that. It's, it's just one of political power. It's, it's easy to chart population growth over the past century and then, you know, put that data next to rising emissions and say, wow, look, the trends line up overpopulation is, is a real crisis. The issue is that this grossly misrepresents what's actually been happening. 
and what the principal factors driving emissions growth are. And this is the problem with the perspective on offer in Planet of the Humans as a whole. The filmmakers see things in absolutes, which means they ignore huge variations of experience, and then they lay blame without recognizing context. The narration that runs over the outro is a good example of this. And spoiler alert, I guess, in case you were concerned about the uh, narrative through line of this documentary. There is a way out of this. We humans must accept that infinite growth on a finite planet is suicide. We must accept that our human presence is already far beyond sustainability and all that that implies. We must take control of our environmental movement and our future from billionaires and their permanent war on planet Earth. They are not our friends. Less must be the new more. And instead of climate change, we must at long last accept that it's not the carbon dioxide molecule destroying the planet. It's us. It's not one thing, but everything we humans are doing. A human-caused apocalypse. If we get ourselves under control, all things are possible. An important question to ask in response to all of this is, who is we? Resource use and carbon emissions vary wildly from country to country, from community to community. A 2015 study estimated that the richest 10% of the world's population was responsible for nearly half of all carbon emissions. The poorest half of the global population, which is around 3.5 billion people, were responsible for roughly 10% of emissions. The poorest half of the population in China, which is roughly 600 million people, produce only a third of the emissions of the richest 30 million people in the United States. And in countries that have seen significant increases in emissions over the past few decades, like China and India, the story is further complicated by the fact that major portions of their economic output, and therefore their emissions and environmental impact, are tied directly to companies based in Europe and the U.S. that have offshored their manufacturing processes and outsourced other labor. The same is true of practices like deforestation that people often talk about when they look at countries in, you know, what is called the global south. A great deal of this economic activity is driven by uh, economic need and a lack of other economic opportunity, as well as demand that's uh, principally sourced from countries like the U.S. for certain uh, products or supply chains or whatever. And so the emissions, you know, an environmental degradation map becomes much less clear once the supply chains of a globalized economy are taken into account. It isn't necessary to rely just on income and wealth stats to see how skewed resource use and distribution are, though. We can look at energy usage for one other perspective. Per capita energy consumption in the U.S. is nearly twice that of some wealthy European countries like Germany or France. And those countries, in turn, have per capita energy consumption rates that are around six times the rate of India, a country often targeted by population control advocates and with a history of such policies. And then even within a country like the U.S., with its huge carbon footprint, there are jarring disparities in resource use that big picture statistical averages like these don't properly reflect. And while it's easy to blame a carbon footprint on something like a culture of overconsumption in the United States, there is a need, I think, to reckon with energy not as a, an individual problem, but as a systemic political one. What options are even available to most people in the U.S. in terms of uh, employment, 
transit, housing, leisure, food, any of these things. In a lot of cases, the choices people can realistically and affordably pick between are inherently inefficient, inherently unsustainable. And attending to the reality of unsustainability is therefore fundamentally a political challenge, not one that can be addressed by individuals making adjustments on their own in the marketplace or whatever. All of this highlights, on the one hand, staggering levels of inequality in the world. On the other hand, I think this also points to a bedrock of unsustainability in the global political economy. Accelerating greenhouse gas emissions have not rid the world of inequality, despite the expansion of the global economy that we always hear about. And individual efforts to lessen our own environmental impact will often be severely limited by the ways that fossil fuel infrastructures shape and organize day-to-day -day life. So to speak of humans as one thing without getting into the specifics of different experiences really misses critical aspects of how energy is produced and used in the world, which means that a depopulation proposal or some other kind of population control proposal will disproportionately impact people who have had relatively little to do with the amount of carbon in the atmosphere or pollution in the rivers and oceans. Or to put it differently, if proposals to depopulate hundreds of millions of people, or even a few billion people in Africa, South America, and Asia have hypothetically the same environmental impact as depopulating just a small fraction of that amount of people in the U.S., and, and something about this framework is off. And it's worth questioning why population control advocates continue to focus on depopulation outside of the U.S. despite these realities. Population control measures seem to prioritize a certain way of life lived by certain people and then expect that billions of others should sacrifice so that this way of life might be maintained. There's a, there's a passage in Paul and Ann Ehrlich's essay from 2009, the uh, retrospective on the population bomb, that's, I, I think, pretty revealing. They state, quote, It should be noted that in 1968, as today, there was and is enough food to feed everyone an adequate diet if food were distributed according to need. But there is not the slightest sign that humanity is about to distribute anything according to need, and it is uncertain how long there will be enough food for everyone, even if there were more equitable distribution. I think this is a pretty surprising admission. They're saying up front that the issue is not one of actual physical resource scarcity, but instead is a consequence of political decisions. And then in the very next moment, they say that the political decisions that create starvation are apparently impossible to address. So we might as well just give up and move on to depopulating billions of people. There's, there's no political imagination here. There's no ambition for producing something more equal, no desire to engage with the political movements that are working against these inequalities, no interest in trying something different to get different results. This is ultimately what makes the overpopulation debate so insidious, I think. It restricts a range of possibilities to just one thing. It argues in absolutes about what society can be, and in the process, it devalues huge parts of the human experience. Instead of acknowledging the enormous variety of ways that human beings have lived and found meaning throughout history, population control advocates insist that the way that one small portion of humanity has lived for the past few decades, at the expense of the majority of the rest of the planet, is really the only way that things can be in the future. But that way of life has existed for an exceptionally short period of time. The fact that its impact on the planet has been so catastrophic despite its short duration means that there is much more reason to question whether or not it's a system worth maintaining. Instead, it's possible to acknowledge that things just don't have to be this way. 
From there, the political questions that need answers become entirely different, and people are no longer asked to see other human beings as competition, or, or worse, as an ecological drain or burden. Addressing the climate crisis in this way is a profound, transformative undertaking. I don't, I don't want to understate that at all. It involves reimagining capitalist social organization entirely, everything from energy infrastructure to transportation to community planning to social life to the economy itself. All of these things are currently built atop an unsustainable foundation that uh, it won't be made sustainable through an easy, clean switch to a, a renewable energy supply. But that's the necessary and, and worthy work that the overpopulation discourse distracts us from. What might initially appear to be an unavoidable mathematic truth is in fact determined and bounded by capitalist structures that facilitate wastefulness and require the aggressive exploitation of fossil fuels. Overpopulation just isn't the emergency that some claim it is. I don't mean to suggest in any way that hunger isn't a real and urgent crisis or that pollution, environmental degradation, any of these things aren't genuine problems. But population control doesn't provide a solution to those issues. And that is ultimately why Planet of the Humans probably wouldn't make my recommended viewing list. All that for a drop of blood. Okay, I, I think that's it for this episode. Next time around, we're going to talk about something I mentioned just a moment ago. This idea that uh, you know the fossil fuel era has existed for an exceptionally short amount of time, but it's had extraordinary impacts on the global ecosystem. So we're going to be considering some of the timing of the developments of fossil fuels and uh, their kind of ecological impacts. Thank you for listening. If you've made it this far, I am very, very appreciative. Uh, like I mentioned at the beginning, I'm still figuring out a lot of the details here. And really, I'm hoping to turn this into something that actually brings in other voices and like actual expertise, that sort of thing. Uh, I'm going to keep working on that. I have to figure out the logistics of it. Um, in the meantime, if you're interested, you can follow along on Twitter at acclimatedpod, all one word. Over there, I'll be posting updates, like maybe some relevant reading materials, links that might be related to whatever the current topic is. Um, I'll also have a list of citations for each episode available over there. If you're interested in reading further, please feel free to reach out with comments or criticisms as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts on whatever it is I'm trying to do here. But thank you again. I'm hoping to have another episode out in maybe three or four weeks or so. So I'll see you next time.